pray. Father, as we get into your word today again, we, we just ask, God, that you would bless this time. And, and Lord, we look forward to what we're going to learn. We look forward to, God, you're speaking to us, and maybe it's going to be words of conviction. Maybe it's going to be words of encouragement. But, Lord, we know that, God, you are interested in our lives, especially as we think about this book, that you want to be intimately involved with us. So I pray that, uh, Lord, that we would have ears to hear, and, and uh, God, most of all, that we could, we could draw from this the fact that our God loves us and that our God cares about us. But most importantly, Lord, that our God is in control. So I do pray that you would bless this time and God, that you would have your way with it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as we, as we get into Esther, now Esther is one of those books that, hey, some people, some people won't even teach through Esther. They don't want to talk about it. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a book, number one, Esther never mentions God. And you know what I like about that is the fact that through Esther, we can learn that you and I can witness to people and we can share with people without having to really mention God because there are times where that could become offensive. And, and so you learn from Esther, hey, you don't have to come out and say things. You can demonstrate things. So, you know, you have that. And then, and then just where this is at uh, through the scripture. So chronologically, remember, we're trying to do the Old Testament. Those of you who have been here for a couple years, we started years ago in Genesis, and we're trying to do this chronologically so we can get an idea that the Bible is, you know, that the way the books are in the Bible are not necessarily in chronological order. So we're trying to get it that way so we can understand a little bit better. So we were in uh, Haggai and Zechariah. Well, we were in es or Ezra. Then we went to Haggai and Zechariah because they were prophesying during that time. Then we went back to Ezra for one chapter. And now we're going to do Esther because this is where Esther fits in chronologically as we're thinking about it. And, you know, it is something to think about. Ezra has not left he hasn't left Babylon yet. He's still part of that. He doesn't leave till chapter seven. We did chapter six, right? Just checking, see if any of you are paying attention. <laughs> Just wondering. So we did chapter six, and now we're skipping. And, and listen, so you have to remember, Ezra's still around. I'm thinking Daniel's gone by now. I'm thinking he's not around just because of what we read. I'm thinking Daniel's gone, but he had stayed there. When they released all of the people to go back, when Cyrus released everybody, very few Jews went back. More stayed in Babylon than went back. And we need to keep in mind, and some people say, oh, they were a bunch of cowards. Not necessarily. I don't think, I don't think you want to call Daniel a coward, and he didn't go back. So we have to be careful how we, how we do that. But a bunch didn't go back, and, and some of them happened to be this lady named Esther, her uncle named Mordecai, different people involved. So you still have a bunch of Jews still in that area of Babylon or, you know, again, ruled by pagan kings. Now, it is interesting, the name of this pagan king, I think, appears 30 times, and God's name doesn't appear at all. So, you know, you kind of get what this book is about you know, a little bit more about what it's about and what's going on. So as we think about that, here's what one person wrote, G. Campbell Morgan. I don't know, many of you have heard of him, but he's an old dead guy. 
Old dead guys are good to quote, right? G. Campbell Morgan said this. He says, while there is no name of God and no mention of the Hebrew religion anywhere in Esther, no one reads this book without being conscious of God. I love that, you know, that, that you, can't, you can't read this book and not come away with the conclusion there is a God. And then another theologian says this about providence that we're going to look at. He says, providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere. You know, I kind of like simple definitions. You know, theologians can come up with these great sounding things. And, you know, again, some of them go right over our head. And, and some of them are, you know, real pompous sounding. I like it when it just gets plain. Hey, here's providence. God's attention everywhere. Isn't that great? Just kind of simple like that. That, hey, we can relate to that. And it's simple. I remember years ago being at a conference. And, and uh, someone asked, uh, it was a conference, and R.C. Sproul was was there, who's a great theologian, and another guy, uh, Brown, I can't remember what his first name is, Steve Brown. Steve Brown was there, and Steve Brown's kind of just a southern, down-to-earth guy, and they asked people, what, what's the sovereignty of God? Can you explain that? Well, R.C. Sproul's Mr. Theologian, so he's gonna go on and on and on, and he kind of did. And then Steve Brown said, I got a real simple definition. It's this, God does whatever he wants and he does it right well. And I thought, yeah, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's how we need to look at things. So, hey, this is all brought down, but obviously God's sovereignty or providence, whatever you want to call it, is all throughout this book. His handprint is everywhere on this book and we need to see that. Now, something I do want to draw our attention to though as we think about it, every nation, and it's something that I think even should be proclaimed somewhat today, Every nation that's come against Israel has suffered the wrath of God. Egypt. And here's what else is interesting. Out of many of those hard, hard times come great feasts, right? Egypt, they tanked, and now uh, they celebrate Passover from that. Out of, out of Hanukkah, I don't know if you know, Hanukkah comes from when they rebelled against the Greeks who had come in, Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered a pig on the altar, things got weird, things got out of hand, the Maccabees came in, and then Hanukkah was when they were trying to cleanse the altar, they didn't have enough oil for the lamp to burn, but it miraculously burned for seven days, that's why you have the seven candles and, and stuff of Hanukkah, and, and it's a celebration. Some people say it's not in scripture, but it is. Jesus celebrated, what does it say? He went and celebrated the Feast of Lights. That's Hanukkah. So Jesus celebrated it. So, and, then, and then out of this book, we get the whole celebration of Purim. It's a cool celebration in Israel, and it happened because of Haman and what he's done. So kind of some background on what's going on. I want to read the first verse and then talk a little bit about this king. It says in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who ruled over 120 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So listen, the author is giving us a little bit of background here, hoping that we might catch on. Now, one thing is, who wrote the book of Esther? I don't think Esther wrote it. Some say Mordecai. I don't know. Some say Ezra. I don't know. And, you know, I don't think we'll ever find out. Maybe when we're in heaven, we can say and ask, and, and someone will come through. But this Ahasuerus, actually, the NIV, if you're reading the NIV, 
The NIV has Xerxes, right? Starts with an X, Z, Xerxes. That's, that's the actual name. Ahasuerus is an interpretation of that name by the Hebrews, or some say it's mainly a title. But this is that king. Listen, he was a king who was a, the son of Darius the first, and now he's taken over. Remember, we just read about Darius in Ezra. So this is his son. He's taking over. And then it says, so, you know, a lot of people get all hung up about the, about the whole name. It's pretty simple. If you just read and study, it's not really like this big thing of, I have to find the clue of who it is. If you do a little bit of research, a little bit of background, you can find out exactly who this king, a real king, written about. So Ahasuerus, and then it says he was over 127 provinces. Now, some people get uptight about that. How can he be over that many? Do you remember how many there were during Daniel? Any of you guys read the book of Daniel lately? Remember how many there were? Remember when they came and attacked him? And remember when Daniel was made leader? Do you remember how many provinces? There was 120. So when people get all freaked out, I go, why do you get freaked out here and you don't get freaked out in Daniel? You know, it's okay, you know. And do you ever talk to your Bible or books you're reading? I like talk to books all the time. And I tell them, you need to take a chill pill and, you know, it's okay. Don't get so freaked out on those things. And here's what happens. Sometimes critics get so into those things, they lose the big picture of what's going on. Here's what we need to know, and it's kind of interesting. I was reading Warren Wiersbe on, on Esther, and Warren Wiersbe's commentary on Esther is, is, is in the same book as his commentary on Ruth. And he kind of compares the two, which is interesting, right? Ruth is a country girl out in the country doing the, doing the whole, you know, harvesting and all of that. And Esther's the city girl in the big city. Things are happening in a big metropolis, crazy stuff going on. So kind of fun to think about. Listen, God's involved whether you're in a small town, whether you're in a big city, whether you're doing something that some people may consider not important or whether you're doing something that's very important. Here's the thing you and I need to realize it's not where we're at it's not even what we do it's who are you doing it for who are you living for and we get that demonstrated here so now back to Ahasuerus so you have this guy oh and one more thing Darius was defeated he tried to go and defeat the Greeks and they beat the snot out of him bad so you can study again google you know history and look at it and and uh, it was ugly Ahasuerus, right at this time, is wanting to get revenge for dad. And he's getting ready to attack Greek, Greek, Greece. So he's going to go after him. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. He's getting all geared up to do that, and yet it's not even mentioned in the book of Esther. And that's what, hey, that is going on behind the scenes. That's why he's gathering these people together to do stuff, to show his force, to get everybody excited, to get this war going. And the war even happens during the book of Esther, but it's never mentioned in the book of Esther. Why? Because you know what? God was not interested in the, in the war between, you know, Ahasuerus and, and the Greeks. He was interested in what's going on with Esther. Remember, the Bible's not a complete uh, you know, a whole complete historical uh, uh, writing. God is giving us what's relevant for redemption. And so just because he leaves something out, you know, there's one, one guy that I know that gets all uptight. God left that out. 
it's okay. Once again, it's all right, dial it back a little bit. That wasn't interesting. You know, God was not concerned about that part. So he's getting ready for this big war. Oh, and I, I might as well tell you, he blows it big time. He doesn't win. And that's part of, part of what coming back and dealing with, with Esther and stuff. But, but for right now, he's on a high, right? Woo, we're going to go. So it says he's over all of these people. Then in verse 2, it tells us, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which, which was in uh, uh, Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of the, of the Persia and Media, and the noble, uh, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the Persia and Media, the nobles, and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, for 180 days in all. Check this out, man. This guy is doing a party for six months. That's a big party. Now, I, I believe, I believe it was that long because I don't believe all these people came from all 120 provinces at once. I think later on they do, but I don't think they were all there for six months. I think they were coming and going and, you know, hey, he brought this section in and had a party. I think he himself partied for six months, but, you know, different people came in and out of the party as he's there, and he's trying to show everybody, look at everything I have. Let's get ready for war because we can do this. Okay, so kind of keep that in mind. That's his motivation of what's going on, trying to get him to come. He's showing him everything. And then verse 5 brings it down to, to what's going to happen. It says, and when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from the great to the small, in the court from the garden of the king's palace. So right at the end, a seven-day feast. Now, that's quite, that's quite an event, right? I mean, seven days is a long time. I think one day is a huge, you know, that's a big party. Seven days? So they're all together. They're having this party. He's showing everybody. Look at what it says about his palace. Look at verse 6. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. This sounds like a pretty, pretty good digs, huh? Sounds like his house was nice. You know, he didn't spare any expense, and he had everything. So here's the deal. Look at, look at all of this grandeur I have. Surely we can go to war. Surely we can win. Not a problem. We've got this covered. And, again, boasting of how many people are under him and around him and all the provinces. So verse 7, and they were served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. So you get the idea? Like this is, this is posh, right? Everybody gets their own golden goblet. I wonder if you got to take it home. And that's what goes on in my mind. Can, can I keep this? This is kind of nice. It's individual. And, you know, it's, it's and, uh, but it's interesting. Different people estimated the value of, of just his wealth at that time. 
And he was probably one of the wealthiest kings of all time, even compared to Solomon. So this guy had it going on, right? Has this huge party. Now everybody's drinking. Bummer. Bummer when you get to that part. I'm thinking, when I first read this, I think, this is not going to be good. Something's going to happen here, right? And he's serving everybody. And then, and then, but here's the weird part. Look at this part. This, this verse always kind of always like freaks me out. It says, listen, he says that he was generous with the king, the king was generous with the wine. Then verse eight says, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory for, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they uh, should do according to each man's pleasure. So here's the thing, man. It's kind of weird to me to mention they, he wasn't forcing them to drink. He wasn't telling them, if you're at my party, you got to drink. And I'm thinking, I wonder why that's mentioned. I don't, I don't, by the way, I don't have an answer. Sometimes I bring stuff up and, you, and people are going to go, oh, good, he's going to tell us. <laughs> I have no clue why he said that. I mean, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, that's just kind of weird to put in there that, it, you know, hey, you can come to my party and you don't have to drink if you don't want to. I would think that was kind of understood, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe in that day, if you went to a king's house, he gave you wine, you were supposed to drink, right? So he didn't make it compulsory. And again, not sure why that was in there, but it is interesting to me in scripture how usually when the wine starts flowing, so does trouble. You know, and I know there's a huge debate on, you know, can Christians drink? Can they do this? Can they do that? And, you know, we want to ask questions. Listen, the Bible is very clear. It doesn't say we can't drink. It doesn't say we're prohibited from alcohol. But it is interesting when you read through Scripture how those involved in ministry are told not to drink. Read from the Old Testament on. If you're involved in something, you're not supposed to drink. And when you read and they're drinking, usually problems start. And if any of us have a background, I have a background coming from that, and usually when I would drink, problems would start. So here they are, they're kind of having this great party, he's showing them everything, and I think he's kind of on that, you know, I think he's on an emotional high, and I think he's on an alcohol high. And everything's going. And then a little side note lets us know something. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So it seemed like they separated and had two different parties. She had the ladies over here, the guys over here. Or maybe I should say this, because there's a lot of speculation about what happens next. Maybe she had the wives over here and the guys and the concubines and the prostitutes were over there. Maybe that's it. And I'll talk about that in a moment. So anyway, she's got her own thing going on. And she's entertaining and whining and dining the, the, the wives of all of these important people. All these important people are drinking. The king's drinking. Everything seems okay until inebriation starts taking place. And you know, the one thing I do know what Scripture does say is, the Scripture says we should not be drunk. So says you can drink, but not to get drunk. You know the best way never to get drunk? Never to drink. It's kind of simple in my mind. I'm a, I'm a simple guy. And I'm thinking if the Bible tells me I shouldn't go someplace, why do I want to hang my toes over the edge and say, how close to the line can I get without blowing it, Right? 
And so, listen, man, these guys are, are flowing. It's all, it's all kind of good up to this point. But then in verse 10, on the seventh day, so imagine seven days. I don't know how many of you were partiers, or maybe you still are. But I don't know how many were before they got saved. But, you know, I, I did some partying in my day. Seven days? Like in Bisbee, we could go four days. <laughs> seven? I'm thinking Seven? That's like, man, that is stretching it, right? You got to go to work eventually, right? So listen, and seven days, I read this. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry, verse 10, was merry with wine, he commanded, and we have these guys, Mehumam, Biztha, and the seven, the seven guys, right? Seven eunuchs. They're, they got weird names. So he got his seven eunuchs together who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus and he got them together and here's what he told them. Go bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her golden crown or her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. So now here's the complicated thing. Why did he give this command? Why did he come up with this order? I mean, it's just, I think it's just weird anyway. It's just, it's just weird to say, I want to parade my beautiful wife in front of everybody, and I want everybody to see my beautiful wife. Dude, you're drunk, right? You kind of want to say, you, you know, cut him off, quit doing that. And then, but then there's some complications. Some say, because it says wearing her, her crown, that it was implied that that's all she was to wear when she was to come. I'm not sure. I think that might be taken a little too far, just interpreting the Bible. It could be. Maybe that's what he did. But I also think, and I want to go back to the statement I made earlier. Generally, in these kind of parties, it wasn't just their wives. They had concubines. They had harems. They had prostitutes. So what is generally going on is in this big feast, for seven days, think about this, seven days, and they would have these other ladies in. And it was degrading for a wife to be part of that. Are you with me on that? It was degrading for her to come in and hang out with the concubines and the prostitutes. I think that's more what's going on. That's my opinion. I don't think, listen, some people go, this was just a showdown between the king and the queen, whether she was going to obey him or not. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking there was something else going on. I'm, and I'm not going for the naked thing, although it could be. He could have just said, hey, I don't know what husband would do that. I want my wife to come out with her crown on only. I'm thinking that is like weird. So listen, whatever it is, He's telling her to come, and you might, you might just go with the power struggle if you want to do that. Doesn't matter. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But here's what it was, man. My wife's beautiful. I want to bring her out. I want everybody to see her. So go get her. So he says seven guys. I mean, I think seven guys is a lot to go ask your wife, hey, can you come out? Just personally thinking, but maybe he knew there was going to be some resistance. So verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and at the king's command and brought by his eunuchs therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him oh now i think there's 
on a couple levels, I think we can. We, we don't want to just go with a whole male versus female thing and, and authority, although I think there is somewhat of an authority thing going on. But I think mostly, here's what's going on. He's the king. He's the king. And whether she's his wife or not, She's subject to the king. I'm not just talking as a husband. To the king. And you tell the king in that day, that culture, you didn't tell the king no. If the king said to do something, you did it. And again, maybe if it's immoral, she had a right, but whatever. But listen, man, she says no. Now, I also have to question her heart. Hey, keep this in mind. She's been feasting for seven days. Her and the girls, right? Her and her posse. So no telling what was going on in that room. We're not given that information. But he says, hey, come out here. She goes, not going to happen. Wow. Wow. Now, a couple things. It's funny to me. A lot of people get into this whole idea of, you know, husband and wife and submission and stuff. And I think it's way beyond that. And, you know, hey, I believe what the Bible says about wives are to submit to their husbands. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that's a negative thing. Listen, it's, it's, uh, I don't think husbands are to be dictators. Having said that, and we'll talk about that in a moment when we get to this next dude. But listen, I think, I think scripture's very clear on that and how we're to function as a family. And I believe, listen, I believe so strongly it's different roles. It's not one is set higher than the other or in a higher position. We have different roles. And whether we're talking about church, whether we're talking about family, whether we're talking about government, we have different roles and we shouldn't get all freaked out and uptight about it. Jesus demonstrated to us submission to its highest degree. We should understand that. And so listen, submission isn't bad. I think it could be a good thing. But Getting back to this, she's not submitting, she's not only not submitting to her husband, she's not submitting to the king. And the king is drunk, he's inebriated. Alcohol and anger definitely don't go together. So now, man, listen, now he's burning within and, and you know, he's in that place. And then in verse 13, it says, the king said to the wise man who understood the times, for this was the king's manner, towards those who knew the law and justice, those close to him uh, being, and he names seven more, and you can do their names. We'll start with Karshina and, and Shithar, and you can do the rest. <laughs> so listen, here's what happens. The king brings his wise guys. Remember in the book of Daniel? Hey, these guys were astronomers. They were mathematicians, they were educated in all of these things. This is a broad thing, not, and, and some people say astrology, maybe that was mixed in, but I think they were mostly, you know, it's mostly scientific stuff. Remember, Daniel studied that stuff. And so these were these guys, and, and they're supposed to be his cabinet. They're supposed to be the people, the people that come alongside. And here's the thing, I think it's wise to have counsel from people around you. I think that's wise. I think it's foolish to get counsel from your drinking buddies. Just saying. Just saying. And I'm thinking, dude, what are you doing? If he's inebriated, they gotta be close to it. Why would you talk to them? 
people who get enough alcohol in them usually get very brave, very bold, very boisterous, very prideful. And that's what's going on here. So he brings these seven guys together. And hey, the, you know, the understanding of the times where I get astrology. Listen, these are closest to him. He brings them together. They had access to his presence at the end of verse 14. And they ranked highest in the kingdom, which tells me they were at the party. And then here's what he says. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of the king, Ahasuerus, brought to her by the eunuch. So here's what, it's interesting the way, in I don't know if it's just the way it was written or if he kind of talked about himself in the third person, you know. What should we do when she didn't obey King Ahasuerus? I'm thinking that's a little weird. But here's the thing. Notice it doesn't say, what should we do to her because she didn't obey her husband? It's because she didn't obey the king. And we have to understand that. Listen, she is not submitting to an authority, not I'm not talking about husband and wife here. I'm talking about the king. So he brings these guys together and he goes, hey, you know, you guys are pretty inebriated along with me, so what do you think, you bunch of drunks? That's not what he says, but that's, I'm thinking, dude, like pick some people who aren't at the party, right? Get alone, get some people, or how about this? Why don't we sleep on this, get in our right minds, and deal with things? By the way, inebriated or not, in the midst of anger is never a time to make an important decision. Never a time. And hey, any emotional time in our life is not a good time to make a really important decision like what am I gonna do with my wife? Right, not good. So he brings these guys together and I love this one guy, verse 16, and Mamukin, weird name, he answered before the king and the princes. So, hey, this guy's a spokesman, right? And I'm thinking, couldn't you pick like Sam or somebody? But, hey, this guy's a spokesman. And here's what he says. Listen to his words and listen carefully. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes, all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. Wow. Wow, that guy, that guy has taken this incident, incident and man, he is like... <laughs> kind of sounds like a lot of media that we deal with, right? Like he took this thing and he blew it completely out of proportion, makes... Like, it, it, and, but here's the, also what I'm hearing. This guy's a little bit freaked out about his relationship with his wife. Obviously, I think he's somebody, I'm gonna make a judgment here. I think he's a man who's not loving his wife, who's not protecting his wife, who's not taking care of his wife, and his wife isn't real happy with him. They don't have a good marriage. And now he's giving kind of marriage advice. I'm thinking you should have picked somebody else, man. Because this guy, listen, this guy's very insecure about his relationship with his wife. Here's what he's saying. If all of the women get a hold of this, man, we are gonna have a problem because we're Middle Eastern men and we know they need to wear burkas and stay in the house and, and not go out kind of thing, you know? It's like, it's like this is kind of gross of what I think what he's saying. We gotta keep these women beat down and in their place. And it's like, dude, 
Here's the thing. You never get respect from your wife when you force respect. It's not respect. It's silly. I believe, listen, I believe the whole idea of submission is respect. And I believe if you want your wife to respect you guys, you need to earn that respect. You need to be a husband that the Bible describes. And you need to get into that role and live that role. Then I think your wife will respect you. But this guy, this guy's like panicking. I don't know who his wife is, but it's not good, right? So then verse 18, this very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they heard of the behavior of the queen, thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. Man, he doesn't give up, does he? There had to be problems at home. There had to be, man. Like he's in panic mode. And he's saying, let's do this. So, I, I mean, I just, it gets worse and worse. Verse 19, so if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before the king, uh, king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Wow, here's what he's saying. She said, no, I'm not coming to your party naked or with, you know, with whatever her reason was. Even if her reason was just being a jerk, here's what he's saying. Get rid of her. Once again, demonstrating his heart and what's going on in his life. And then did you notice he said, let it be written as in the law of the Medes and the Persians? Why? Do you remember Daniel? Remember Daniel? Once, once it's decreed in their law, the king can't change his mind. Once it's down, that's it. Remember when they did that to Daniel and, 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 and tried to trap him? So here's what he's saying. Let's get it written down. Why? He wants to make sure his wife is where she belongs. Guys, you don't put your wife where they belong. That's so silly, right? So I'm reading this going, this blows my mind. This is, this is weird. And verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. No, we did 19, right? So verse 20. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all of his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. Puke. It's like, it's not how it happens, man. It's like, come on. Now, here's what I know. God's up to something, right? God's up to something. And God takes circumstances and situations and he makes them and uses them for his purpose. So something's going on here, why? Because something's gonna happen that nobody has read, nobody knows about, but it's down the road. And I'm not just talking about Esther, I'm talking about this, this guy named Haman who hates the Jews. And listen carefully, God protects his people. So all of this, all of this is exactly according to God's plan. Although nut jobs do it, right? I mean, I'm thinking really, I'm thinking so, 
How many of you ladies, if there was a, never mind. So, I mean, I'm just thinking, man, you make some kind of decree like that. It's just weird. So verse 21, and the reply pleased the king. So the king is inebriated enough that his drinking buddy makes a thing. And I don't know how many of you have ever listened to drinking buddies. Not good. I did some really stupid things when I asked somebody else who's as inebriated as I am, hey, what do you think? Should we do this? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Not good, right? So, hey, the king goes, well, that sounds good to me. I'm pretty drunk, and hey, this should work, right? So it pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mimukin. So then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script and in every people and to every people in their own language that each man should be master in his own house. Bad, bad, bad. And see, that's a problem. That's a problem. Some people read in Ephesians when it gives the roles of husbands and wives, they read it in that direction. God never, listen carefully, guys. God never made you a master. He made you a leader, not a master, a leader. God never once ever commanded you to have your wife submit to you. You know what God's command is to men? Some of you haven't read that in a while, so I'm gonna tell you, shock. Here's God's command to men, to husbands. It's pretty simple. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Do you hear that? as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for the church. That's a huge command, guys. It's huge. And all he says to women is, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. I believe the ladies got the easier part. It's my opinion, because I'm a guy. But love your wife as Christ loved the church, that's, that means, you know what, you never give up, you never quit, you never stop, and you give everything you are to that relationship. That's how. And I believe as a man, if you do that, your wife's not gonna have a problem with you. But if you come home as Mr. Dictator and Master, not good. It's not what the Bible calls us to do, guys. And when I hear guys, you know, I knew a guy who was a missionary, I use that term loosely, that made his wife call him Lord. Not good. I thought, you, someone needs to Lord you. But listen, listen to what he says here. Here's, here's the whole thing. Here's what Mamukin was afraid of. He was afraid that his wife was not gonna be who you know, God called her to be, let's say, but they're all pagans anyway. But each man should be the master of his own home. That's not, that's not biblical. Now, here's what I know. We're not talking to Bible-believing people. We're talking to you know, heathens or pagans or whatever you wanna call them. They're not, we're not talking to the Jews here. We're talking to the Gentiles. So I, I kind of get that, but still, that's just, that's just horrible. And it tells us, man, listen, here's what it tells me. This tells me a little bit about what goes on in Persia today. Think about it. 
Think about what you see now in, in the 21st century, what goes on. You know where Persia is, don't you? A couple of you are nodding your heads. The rest of you don't get a map. <laughs> Google Persia. Find it. Listen, man, and it's still, so he should be the master. And then he says, and speak at the end, and speak in the language of his own people. Now, here's what I think he's saying. He's saying that they shouldn't, you know, go ahead and practice their own language. I think what the bottom line is, make sure this is communicated in everybody's language so they know what the king has decreed. So, bad thing, right? Here's, here's what I'm thinking. All of this started because there was a king who wanted to show his leaders how great he was, and that he could fight a great war. I read someplace that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a great fall. I think that's someplace in Proverbs. And that's exactly, listen, that's exactly what we're reading, man. Here's a demonstration of that. Here he's all ready to do that and he's boasting about what he has, boasting about all he's accumulating, letting them know we can go to war and it's not a problem. And then the bottom falls out, man. It's insane. I, I think, I think Ahasuerus is still kind of spinning, not from the alcohol, but spinning about what's going on. And I, here's what I'm thinking. He's thinking at the end of this, how did we get here? Well, it all started with pride. And pride and alcohol definitely don't mix. But he mixed them. And then anger came in. And then reaction came in. And listen, man, now, here's what I'm thinking. It started out like, an, in, in, as, as we started the reading, it was a nice, peaceful kingdom. Now, man, the thing is in shambles. And here's the whole thing. In between chapter one and chapter two, he's got to go to war. He's got, remember, he's got that war going on. He had that whole thing he's thumping his chest about, we're going to go to war and we're going to win. He's going to go to war and he's going to be absolutely humiliated in this war and come back. And then he's gonna come back and then he's gonna deal with this whole idea of Ashtai and what does he do about his kingdom. So that's letting us know. So here's what I think we need to learn. Don't be prideful. Maybe God's done something great in your life. That's good. But give him the glory. Give him the honor. Maybe he's given you something that's great. Hey, I'm, I don't think, listen, I, I know there's some Christians that think Christians shouldn't own anything nice. I don't think Scripture teaches that at all. I see pretty wealthy Bible-believing guys in the Bible. Abraham, that was one rich dude. David did okay. Solomon did really good. So listen, I don't think the Bible teaches that we, you know, we have to be these people who are meek and mild and you know, that way as, as far as stuff. But I do think it's teaching us, listen, we gotta watch our pride and keep our pride in check and ask God, listen, I, I, I think it's wise to sit down every once in a while and I always tell people to sit down and ask God to examine your heart. Sit down first. Because if you ask him, he will. And there might be some shocking revelations that go on. And maybe you need to change some things in your life. I read through this, and I always want Ahasuerus to repent. I want him to repent till he gets there. I want him to tell the Mukin guy, whatever his name is, you're nuts, man. You're out of your mind. I'm not gonna do that to my wife. But he follows it. Again, God's working his plan, but bummer, bummer for Vashti. Now, one more thing, 
and then we'll wrap this up. It seems like, and this is, this is you know, reading a bunch of people and trying to figure out who this lady Vashti really was and what happened to her. Because someone this, the earlier uh, today said, didn't he just like offer and kill her? Well, it doesn't say that. So she couldn't come in his presence anymore. Many of the people that I read and the research that I read say that right during this time, she's pregnant. And she's pregnant with this guy named Artaxerxes, one of the future kings. And many speculate that when Art to Xerxes, not Xerxes, but Art, took over, that Vashti got her revenge. I don't know if that's true or not. You can do a little bit, but interesting. I do think that they're probably accurate and she's the one who birthed the next king and she did it while in exile, so to speak. But hey, from this we learn, watch your pride. If you drink, drink responsibly. I don't know what that means. When I hear that, I think the most responsible drinking is not. So I'll leave it at that. Some people get mad at me. That's okay. You just have to get glad again. (laughs) In the same exact pants you got mad in. But you know what? Watch it. Watch it. Be careful. And never mix your pride and your anger with alcohol. It will be disastrous. If you get on the verge of that, read this chapter and it will help you. Let's stand up and pray. Father, as we get ready to go, I do pray, Lord, I pray that we would think about our own relationships Looking around, some of us are married, some of us are not. For those that are married, that we would think about our relationships, how we are responsible for our part in that relationship. And I pray for spouses tonight that we would be still before you and make sure that we're following you and listening to you. And as you look around and see single people, I pray that you would begin preparing them for what you have before them. Might be a life of singleness, or it might be a, a future spouse. But prepare their hearts. Lord, take all of us and give us the heart that we need for the people that we're involved with. And protect us, God. Protect us from that evil to me of all evils called pride. Where we begin and come to that place where we think that we have done such great things and we have to show off what we've done. And God, that can come and crumble before us. Let us be men and women who humbly recognize what our God has done. And Lord, I pray that we would be people 
men and women who walk humbly before our God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.